Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous Podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 161, and we're going to be interviewing Steve M. How you doing, Steve? Hey, how are you? Good, thanks. I'm doing well. I'm excited to do this. How about you? Very. All right, let's let's dive in and get started. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Okay. Um, I grew up in New England. I'm the youngest of five. Um, middle class family. Uh two-parent household, Irish Catholic, um, alcoholism runs rampant in my family genetics, and it didn't miss this generation, and <laughs> or the gen- generation prior to me, my older who brother. Were the, who were the alcoholics in the family? <clears throat> um, all my siblings, and we all no longer drink or drug, so that's good. Uh, some of us are in recovery, and some of us are abstinent. And my dad had uh, alcoholism and my cousins, I have a few cousins that have perished due to the disease. And uh, so it's on both sides, mom and dad's side. But as far as my immediate family, it was uh, my father and all of us kids. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. I mean, having all your siblings. But that's also great that all your siblings are sober as well. Yeah. So what was it like um, growing up? What was it like growing up in school? How was your uh, school life growing I up? I feel like we're freezing up here, Jim. Yeah, we froze up for a moment. So tell me about what school life was like. School, I was. Uh a bit of a mischievous kid. Um, I went to Catholic school for my first nine years and then I went to a public school and that was like um, culture shock for me. I was a big fish in a little pond when I was in the school. What was, what was Catholic school like? Um, nuns, strict. Um, I was an altar boy. Um, kind of kind of ended my altar boy career when I was uh, caught drinking the wine and <laughs> eating the bread with some older altar boys who had been doing it for a while, but uh, I happened to get caught when I was doing it with them. So that ended my altar boy career. And uh, then I moved to a public high school. And like Did I said, they that kick was you out of school because of that? No, they just said, you will no longer be an altar boy. And my uh, mother was not pleased um so that was a uh an embarrassing and uh <clears throat> humiliating moment uh, you know this is like seventh grade um so the writing was on the wall i guess you could say as far as my uh antics were concerned um but then i went to a public high school and that was culture shock because that was a huge school and um 
you know, in the Catholic schools and we had, it was like little house in the prairie, one classroom for all your subjects. And then I was in a public high school where we had like different waves of lunches and study halls and you would have to walk from one end, you know, a usual typical high school, but it was, uh, a lot different to me. And, um, I didn't like it. I didn't like the transition. You know, I like being the big fish in the little pond as opposed to being a little fish in a big pond, which is what I was in high school. And that's when I started um, my sophomore year in high school is when I started uh, experimenting with um, alcohol, marijuana and hallucinogens. What grade did you first start that? What age were you? 15, I would say 15 was when I, it really took off. Um, what was the first thing you ever did? Pot, marijuana. Marijuana was the first. I liked it a lot and never stopped. For, what, did you like, what did you like about it? It just changed. I liked the way it made me feel. It just changed the way I felt. It was, uh, I just liked the buzz, I guess you could say. It just took me out of normal, everyday, um, humdrum life, you know? I just, uh, like, I played sports in the neighborhood, but not in the um, school, so that was one of my outlets, but when I, uh, when I started smoking pot, man, I hung out with guys that liked it just as much as me, and we, we just continued and continued all through high school. And um, I also drank, and that started getting progressively worse as far as um, consequences. And that continued <laughs> for a long time. So the first thing you ever tried was marijuana around 15. What was the second thing you tried? Do you remember? Um, acid. 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 Yeah. Did a lot Were you of scared? Acid. Were you scared the first time you took it? No. No. I, uh. I had heard from other people that have taken it makes you laugh. And uh, the only time I got scared on it was when I couldn't sleep. So my body was tired and my mind wouldn't stop thinking. And I was like, okay, I'm ready for this trip to be over with, but it wasn't letting me go. And so I was just up all night wondering if I would ever get back to normal and hoping you know, please, I just want to go back to normal. And uh, that was, I don't know if I would call it a bad trip, but it was a long trip. But that wasn't enough to make me say, I'll never do that again, because I continue doing it. And for the most part, it was fun. I, you know, I laughed, we laughed a lot when we did it. And, uh, but I did it crazy. You know, I, I would do it and I would go to school. Um, I would not take just a half hit, I would take two hits. You know, and it was pretty powerful stuff. So, yeah, the writing was on the wall. I was on my way. And um, did anybody in school notice? Uh, I mean, the people I was with knew that we were on it. But as far as teachers. No, no. I mean, I didn't get caught or get in trouble. You know, I tried to, to pretend I was normal, although. I wasn't. My eyes were, I'm sure, massively dilated. I was laughing at ridiculous things, but it wasn't just me. You know, there was like 
four or five of us that would what would do it. And um, but alcohol was really my major problem, I would say, for a while. Was that uh, the next thing you tried? Yeah, and um, I continued with that well into my twenties, and had some consequences as a result of it. You know, the typical fall down, smash your face, um, get into a fight, sleep late and miss an important thing I had to do in the morning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, throwing up, you know, I drank to excess. I drank to the point where I vomited. And um, as a direct result of my alcoholism, probably early 30s, late 20s, I think it was more early 30s. I was hammered. I was in some area I would never have been in sober. I was with some people I would have never hung out with sober. And I tried crack cocaine. And that's when my disease took another took another turn, but also took me, it just grabbed a hold of me. Just and, going back, going back real quick. What was it? What was your what was your drinking like in high school? In high school, it was weekends, usually. It wasn't um, every day. It was weekends. and But the thing is, my mother had a nose like a bloodhound, so she could smell it. But she was, you know, my when, when, by the time I came around, my parents were tired. They had four kids before me. You know, they both worked a lot. And so they kind of let the, the reins off of me. So even though they may have known I was partying, um, I didn't really get a lot of consequences as a result. You know, they weren't waiting up for me, so to speak. So I was able to get away with it. And uh, like I said, I'm the youngest of five. And uh, I just think they were kind of tired, you know. I mean, and they were, they worked a lot. You know, they provided. They were good parents, but they, they just didn't have a lot of time to keep their eye on me. And that worked to my advantage because... You know, I was out there raising hell. What kind of things would you do that you would quote unquote call raising hell? Uh, we did vandalism. Um, we would go out and do vandalism on a regular basis. Uh, I look back on that and I just shake my head. And, but that's that's some of the stuff we did. Um, what do you mean by vandalism? What exactly would you do? You know, just smash up things uh go from neighborhood to neighborhood and just ravage um whatever you know take a lawnmower and start it and throw it on someone's porch so everybody would wake up just dumb stupid stuff uh uh, we tipped a car over once just flipped the car over in the driveway wow yeah it's just insane stupid just kind of like ravaging neighborhoods and then we would run the rush was we would run from the police or the homeowner and that was the big thrill. And we were pretty good and we knew the neighborhoods and we were fast kids and we never got caught, which enabled us to continue. And uh, yeah, we did some stupid stuff that I regret a lot. But um, I'm sure the karma, karma will come around and some kids will do that to my car or, or get my stuff one of these days. And I'll just have to remember, yeah, there it is, karma. So I was like, you know, kind of wild. I would go to school. I was a poor student. I did, you know, I'm not a dumb guy, but I, I just didn't apply myself at all. 
I met, I, you know, I, I just went and went through the motions and um, did the bare minimum. And it was all about getting out of school and playing a backyard football game and uh, look forward to the weekend. And then um, that was it. That was pretty much my life. Smoking a lot of pot, drinking on the weekends, dropping acid. Um, being a punk your high school experience yeah pretty much i did wrestle and uh i was ineligible academically for two out of the four years so i could only wrestle for two years and you know that's another thing i look back on shake my head because it's a great sport and i wish i had applied myself to um you know to take it seriously but uh i didn't you know I was just, uh, I was more interested in getting wasted, hanging out with guys that got wasted just like me. So you had a lot of friends that were partying also with you? I did. Yeah. Pretty much everybody I hung out with. But eventually, as time went on, they got away from that. Some of them. Probably most of them, actually. In other words, they they stopped smoking pot. You know, they stopped drinking to excess. And uh, uh, we kind of branched off from each other. You know, when they went off to college, I went off to college. But now I was doing what I was doing somewhere else with other people. You know, I always gravitated to people that partied like me. And um, we find each other, you know, no matter where we go, we find each other. This is true. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel the same way. I I would gravitate towards people that I knew were going to party with me. Sure. And it, then, just uh, feel, it, it just has that feeling of you have something in common also. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, do, you're with people doing the same thing, then. The spotlight's not on you. You don't really have to look at yourself and you're not any different, you know, as opposed to if I'm hanging out with people that are serious about school and maybe drink, you know, five beers on a weekend and I'm with them. And I have been in situations like that where I was around normal drinkers and I would, you know, make a fool of myself or I would be the spotlight would on me. I'm like, holy shit. Well, I don't want to hang out with them anymore or I don't want to go there anymore, you know. I would go to go to places that uh, it was obvious I was there because of my my drunkenness, you know. Like people people realized that guy is really messed up right now. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, nobody wants to feel different. Right. Just those kids usually find each other in school. You know, the, the troublemakers find the other troublemakers and they do sure. what they do best. Sure. Absolutely. So you graduated high school. What did you do once you graduated? I did. I had to graduate in summer school, which okay. was, which was uh, the first time I ever stayed back. So my senior year. Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you this part. My senior year. Me and about two other guys found that sniffing gas would give us a real hell of a high. 
So instead of studying for a final exam I had, I was sniffing gas behind my buddy's garage with a couple other guys, and I flunked the final exam. And as a result of that, I couldn't graduate in my senior class. So I had to go to summer school, and then I would get the same diploma that they got. I just couldn't walk down the hill and do the old, you know, cap and gown stuff. So that was the only time in 12 years of school I stayed back. But, of course, I picked the worst time, you know, my senior year. And that was not so my father is a big uh, was a big supporter and advocate for education. So that didn't go over too well. Um, I remember exactly the day it happened. It was the same day Lenny Bias died, who was a Boston Celtics number one draft pick. It was June 1986. And that's when I had to tell my father I wasn't graduating with my class. And that did not go over well with him. So that was a big, uh, a big moment and uh, not a good one. So I went to summer school. Oh, and prior to going to summer school, I worked out on an island where my brother had worked when he was in college. And it's called Fisher's Island. And it's a part of New York. It's off of New York. So I worked out there and I worked at a country club and my drinking really took off there because that was the first time I was out of my house and I was pretty much on my own. And the whole goal was I was going to work there for a month, come back home, do the summer school and then go back out there and finish the summer. But I was such a maniac that when I went back home to go to summer school, they called me up and they said, we're not going to. You know, we're not going to have you. I'll remember the quote exactly. We're not going to be having you back at the club. Um, it's not your work that was the problem. It's your after work antics. Because I would get drunk and just, you know, I was that guy that people would be like, oh, Jesus. You know, um, so I didn't get to go back there. My brother was pissed because he vouched for me. And I'm a good worker. and That wasn't the problem. But I was just raising hell out there. And uh, I wasn't asked back. So I went to summer school. I finished. I graduated. Now this is like August 1986. And my sister was working on an island off of uh, Rhode Island called Block Island. And she called and she said, I can get you a job out here in the kitchen. And I said, okay. So I left my hometown and went out there and worked. And I worked out there every summer for 10 years through my college career and my drinking really took off out there. And, uh, I had a reputation as, you know, a good guy when he's not drinking hard worker, but when he's, when he's drinking, he's a loose cannon. And, uh, the thing about out there is there's a lot of drinking. So I was just one of many, you know, um, whereas the other Island I was on was kind of uh, smaller, quieter, and I really, my drinking and my antics really stood out more so on Fisher's Island than it did on Block Island. But yeah, so went to college. Um, I got a DWI, my one and only. And I remember this is probably the time I realized I was an alcoholic. Looking back, I was an alcoholic prior to this, but. So as a result of getting the DWI, I had to go to alcohol classes and I had to get counseling. So I did it at the college I was at. I went to a college in Rhode Island. And the woman there 
really took an interest in me. You know, she gave me the 20 questionnaire. Are you an alcoholic? And I think I answered yes to every single question. Maybe 19 out of 20 questions. You know, I answered it honestly. You have remorse after you drink. Have you ever missed important things? Have you been embarrassed? Have you lied about your drinking? You know, those questions. Yeah. So I, I answered yes to all of them. And she kept calling me. And after I was done with her sessions, I was done. Like, that was it. I just did it to, to fulfill the court necessity, you know. But she wouldn't stop calling me. Like, she knew I was on my way to a bad place. and But I wasn't even considering not drinking anymore. You know, I just wanted to get the DWI court stuff off my back. And I did. And I satisfied all the court requirements. and But she was very relentless. She left messages. And I never returned her calls. And looking back on that, um, I just realized that she saw that I was on my way to a bad place. Like she had probably seen, you know, that was her field. And by all the things I told her, because I was truthfully truthful with her, she... Um, she wanted me to, to get into recovery, basically. But that was the last thing. You know, I was uh, 20 years old. I was just getting warmed up. So I continued drinking. And, uh, continued getting consequences, but they weren't, you know, I, I'm a lucky guy. I've always uh, said that I've had nine lives, but I might have had more than that. And, you know, we've all had some close calls. But... um that's the amazing thing about alcoholism is we have a, a built-in forgetter where we, we minimize these close calls and these dangerous things. And what are some of the close calls you had? Oh man. Car accidents, um, fist fights. Um, I've been caught falling off this giant porch that if I had fallen, I don't know if I would have been here. Someone actually grabbed me and pulled me back. Um, I wiped and, you know, I got banged up, but it could have been worse, should have been worse. Um, Jesus, man. I mean, we're going back. Yeah. Just, just, uh, a lot of stuff like that. You know, I got jumped outside of a bar cause I was running my mouth and they threw me a whole group of people came at me and threw me through a bank window, right? right through it smash so i'm laying half in the bank and half on the street didn't get one cut on my body i don't know how the hell that happened and then they started kicking me in you know but i didn't i should have been sliced the ribbons not one cut that's miraculous like that's <laughs> that doesn't happen every day you do that a thousand times 999 times you're getting sliced the, you know so a lot of stuff like that a lot of it and there's probably more i can't even remember and uh just kept going. Oh, wow. That was crazy. <laughs> you know, just kept going, kept drinking, kept drinking to excess, throwing up, you know, throwing up to the point where nothing more would come up. And then I would dry heave, which was very painful. So at what point in your life did you realize you had a problem? Uh, Probably in my 20s. Um, I don't I mean, I can't think of the one 
moment, probably when that lady was calling me back a lot, that lady from the DWI, you know, when she kept calling me, I thought about it. Like, wow, she's not letting this go. Um, you know, and, and I remember her asking me questions and me answering them honestly. And her feedback to me was basically like, um, yeah, normal drinkers don't do that. Like, you drink dangerously. And she was right. And um, so that was probably the, the aha moment. Like, I realized, okay, I drink dangerously. But it wasn't enough to make me, you know, I thought about it, but I didn't stop. It wasn't like, okay, I need to stop. Not at all. I just, I kept going. I mean, I liked it. I mean, I liked the transformation it gave me. I was uh, fearless, um, aggressive, you know, in the bars. I, I hung out with guys. We got into a lot of fist fights. Um, you know, uh, it just, it just gave me this King Kong feeling. It kind of empowered me. And, uh, I, I liked it. The, the, the consequences were just part of the deal, you know? So what'd you do to get sober? Oh, well, I, uh, I got hooked on crack. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's where my disease took off to another level. So Drinking, drinking, drinking through my 20s. Like I said, <clears throat> one night I took a hit of that shit and it was on. And that's when I went to treatment for the first time. That's when I was stealing for the first time. That's when people that were close to me left my corner. Um, that's when I got introduced to recovery. That's when I wanted to get clean. That's when I realized I had a problem. Like there was no doubt about it that I had a problem with with that and the weird thing is with the crack was it took my obsession to drink away because now my, I had a new obsession so anytime I had money and after work where I used to go drinking I would go to get that substance so I, there was a stretch there where I didn't drink for a long time so basically I, I say jokingly crack cured my alcoholism of course it didn't but it just I was I wasn't interested in drinking anymore I found something new but what I found was terrible because, you know, I couldn't eat, you know, I couldn't, you know, it got to the point I couldn't feed myself. I mean, it was, it was insane. So I got into my first treatment rehab in 2003. Um, and I went to many more, many more after that, but that was my first introduction to recovery. That was my first introduction to AA and NA as far as like being in it and listening to people and going to meetings and stuff like that but then I would get out and I would keep getting high and um man it was just I look back on that time in my life and just shudder because it didn't it wasn't uh it was a long time like I, right now I have I'm coming up on six years clean so 2003 to two you know 13 years of of this addiction basically um and many treatment centers in between. But as a result of getting introduced to recovery, I was uh, suggested to go into a sober house. So I went to a sober house 
and I met a lot of people in recovery and I met some lifelong friends that I still have today. And I also met some lifelong friends that died as a result of this disease. Uh, and, uh, and I would relapse and I would get thrown out of a sober house. So I'd have to drive around with my car full of all my crap, you know, come up with the money to get back into a sober house, get back into it. And, uh, this went on for a while back in the treatment. I got a job. One of the guys that I lived with who died as a result of this disease worked on the railroad. And I was, ha- I always had like half-assed jobs here and there. I graduated from school. Oh, I didn't tell you that part either. Um, backing up from 2000 to 2002, I went to grad school to become a teacher and my ability to perform in school was here and my disease was right here and I was smoking crack at this point so I I would manage to do everything I was supposed to do at the last minute and still get high but my last semester the bottom fell out and if I had to go one more semester I would have never graduated I finished and I got my degree but I was in rehab like soon thereafter and uh just the progression you know I was just always one step ahead I would get that paper in or I would go to the library and do all my work at the at the last minute but I would do it and I would get it in and my father died during that time too so that didn't uh that was a tumultuous time in my life those two years two or three years there from 2000 to 2003 anyway so I got uh I was kicking around waiting tables um construction just odd jobs and um, getting high. So I went to a sober house and, um, you know, going to meetings, then relapsing, getting thrown out. So my buddy got me a job on the railroad, which is a great job, right? I mean, real good job, best money I ever made. But that job didn't help me because we would live out of hotel rooms across New England and down south, the whole Northeast quarter from Boston to Maryland, to DC. And I was on a travel gang. So I would work in Boston for a few weeks or a few months. I'd be in Baltimore. I'd be in New York. I'd be in New Jersey, getting high all over the place. And now I had a lot of money. And I'll tell you what, uh, that, and then also because I worked for the railroad, they had a good EAP, excuse me, an EAP system where if you needed help, you could go to treatment and I did. I went to treatment several times while I was working there. And um, it was just, it was crazy because I would work all this overtime, make a lot of money and be broke soon thereafter I got my paycheck. I mean, it didn't matter how much I made because I was smoking all of it to the point where I would borrow money just to get through the week to eat and put gas in my car and, you know, so, and then when it got to really bad, I would go to rehab. I would throw the white flag up. I'd go to rehab and I'd come out, get back in the sober house, you know, and eventually I, uh, I melted the cup at that job and I lost that job. And looking back on it at the time, I was devastated because it was a good job. It wasn't a job. It was a career, you know, and I, I was making a lot of money, but I wasn't 
saving anything. You know, I wasn't doing it. I was not in recovery. You know what I mean? I was always working or using. So it wasn't conducive to recovery. And people told me that, you know, you should quit that job. You're never going to get clean and sober with that job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do both. I can do both. And I never, I couldn't. I just, I didn't. And uh, the guy that got me the job died. He, uh, he died as a result of this disease. And I feel like if I had stayed there, looking back, I feel what was I thought was a curse was actually a blessing because the money I was making and the way I was using and the cities I was using in, it was just a matter of time before my heart blew up or I got shot in the face or I got locked up. So by getting fired, that took that away from me, you know, all that money, all that ability to use like a bull and uh and because of that my life went in another direction and i'm grateful because where i am today compared to where i was is night and day and, um, yeah looking back that was in 2014 when i got fired and i was i was like wow man i really blew this and i did but looking back on it man it, it probably saved my life you know i think that was a god shot yeah definitely definitely so what are you up to nowadays to stay sober how do you uh keep your sobriety going i go to meetings my wife's in recovery i got married in recovery um i'd also believe that was something that my higher power put in my life um because now now it's not just all about me, you know, in the past, I didn't so much care about consequences. I always kind of like dusted them off or, 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 um, living that lifestyle. But now I have a wife and she has two sons. So I'm grounded in that lifestyle where I go to work, I come home, we eat dinner, we go to meetings and we just do it again. So I have this lifestyle that's very, um, I guess you could say simple. It's just like predictable and it's consistent and I, and uh, it's different, you know, and, and I've been doing it for six years and I go to bed early. I get up early, you know, night is not day and day is not night the way it used to be where I would, you know, after three days come home with the birds chirping, but I would be by myself. So, you know, I would feel that guilt and, oh, shit, I screwed up the rent and, oh, man, this happened. But it didn't affect, it didn't have residual, I guess it did with my family because they were upset, my brothers and sisters. Um, but actually affect somebody outside of me financially, you know what I mean? It was always, I would have to deal with the repercussions. Whereas today... I'm not willing to put my wife through that <laughs> and she wouldn't, she wouldn't be put through it. You know what I mean? She put me on the curb. So I'm not willing to lose what I have today over that shit. And that's what it is. It's just this nasty substance that wants to separate me from everything I love. And I'm not giving it that foothold and I haven't fed it in almost six years. And I know if I do, that's when the obsession will come back. Right now, I don't Jones anymore. You know, I don't obsess. There was times I couldn't drive past certain exits, certain cities without taking the exit. No matter where I had to go, 
I could have had to go somewhere important. And there were times that, you know, Christmas dinners, Thanksgiving dinners is an empty seat there because Steve didn't make it. And, uh, you know, my mother, my brother, my nephews and nieces, where's Steve? Where's Steve? Steve couldn't get past that exit. Steve had money in his pocket and he knew what that exit meant. I couldn't get past it. Now I can drive past any exit with a pocket full of money. You know what I mean? And I'm so grateful for that because there was a time I couldn't, I couldn't get, through, I couldn't get past. I had 50 bucks in my pocket. I was thinking about where I was going to cop and that's not the case today. And man, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because a lot of us never get out of that, that, that obsession, that grip. And um, a big part of it, a huge part of it is the fact that I have a wife who's in recovery and I have two stepsons that look up to me. You know what I mean? I don't want to let these guys down. I'm sick of letting people down. So I'm not, and I have it, and I hold on to that. And God, I believe, orchestrated all these things. Like, he always gave me a life raft to get out of this hell I put myself in, and I didn't grab it before, you know? But I grabbed it, and I'm not letting go of it. And uh, I'm just a lucky dude, man, you know? I I mean, a lot of guys I know aren't here. Um, A lot of guys I know are still using but a lot of guys I know are clean. All those years I was in, in and out of sober houses, in and out of meetings, you know, I still have those contacts. I still talk to those people and um, thank God for them. And, um, you know, I don't know if I, well, you didn't get the book yet, but you will. I, uh, back in way back, like 20 years ago, when I first got introduced to the meetings, I would hear these things that were, that were new to me. You know, some of them, if you've been to meetings, you've heard a million times. But at that time, I hadn't heard any of them. And I always liked to write. So I said, wouldn't it be something if I took all these quotes that I'm hearing and put them in a book? And I said, I know what I'll call that book. Thanks for letting me share. Because that's what we say after every share in a meeting up here anyways in New England. And uh, so I started taking them all down. I started taking down all these quotes in my phone on pieces of paper. I had tons of them. So during the pandemic. I said, this is it. This is the time. And I put them all together. I went on Amazon KDP and I published it. And I'm proud of that because that was on my bucket list. I always wanted to be a published author way back, you know, because I like to write. I write poetry. And anyways, I take this book and I send it out to rehabs all across the country. I probably sent out, I don't know, 300 of them. And a lot of my friends in recovery, I've given away copies. But anytime someone buys two, I take the proceeds and I can buy one because it's printing costs and mailing costs and I ship it out. I just got a whole list of rehabs, random ones all over the country. And I I focused on West Virginia for a while because they're getting decimated by the opioid crisis. So I sent a lot to West Virginia, but I've sent them to Oakland, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and it feels good, man. Every time I send one out, like no drink or drug has ever made me feel like that, you know, because I feel like someone in some rehab, is sitting there and they're going to pick up this book and it, it'll plant the seed. And, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm proud of that. Like, that's one of my, I'm, I'm almost as proud of that as I am graduating from school because it, well, it that is something to be proud of. You know what I mean? You put hard work into it. It sounds like it, it was a lot of work. I'd never published anything before, you know, and I had to like 
it, it wasn't easy putting it all together so that it fit in this book. And I had to make a cover with a picture and I don't know computers that well. Anyway, <laughs> I, a lot of trial and error and a lot of mistakes, a lot of edits, but you'll get it. You'll get your copy. I think you'll like everyone in recovery that's read it has enjoyed it. So I'm proud of that. You know, I figure when I'm dead long after I'm dead, people are going to be reading that book somewhere. And that, that's, that's a nice legacy. I feel that's pretty, uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. So we're getting towards the end here. Let me ask you a question. Sure. What advice do you have people, uh, I'm sorry. What advice do you have for people watching and listening? Um, if you are struggling, don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. I picked up a million white key tags and a million white chips. I kept coming back. I kept like I those are one of the things I heard. Keep coming back. Don't stop until the miracle happens. And I believed them. I believed all these people I heard in the rooms because you can't get that many people that are staying clean and sober who are doing the same things. It's not a coincidence. So my advice would be if you're if you're struggling or if you're new, latch around these people that are doing this and that have some time under their belts and hang out with them. And don't be afraid to share how you feel because we get each other. You know, I'm a lot like you. I don't even know you. But if you're an addict or an alcoholic, we think a lot alike. So that's my advice. Surround yourself with people that are staying clean and sober and that have experience doing it. Because that's, you know, it's not necessarily it's going to rub off on you, but it'll inspire you. It'll motivate you. And it did with me. I saw these guys. I saw the way they were living. You know, they were upright. They had families. They went to work. They had integrity. And they used to be a total shit show. But they changed their lives. And they all have the same story as far as what they did to get better. And it has a lot to do with AA or NA. And I've been to both. And I have friends in both fellowships. And I still go to both. And that's important. You know, I think that's the most important thing for me. If I start wandering off by myself, you know, and I start getting away from that, I'm not hearing those messages, my old thinking will come back. That, that's what I think. And um, I'm not willing to risk it. So, yeah, that's my advice. And if, you're, and if you've been around for a while, hang out with the newcomer because what you say means a lot. It, it, means, it carries a lot of weight. You know, tell your story, because when I heard these stories, I believed them. And I, I knew in my heart of hearts, this was possible. I had doubts sometimes, but these people reached out to me, you know, and even when I was out there running and I got away from it, Hey, we're here. We're here when you're ready, when you're ready to come back, we're still here. We love you. And I knew it. And, and I just knew, I knew I could do this. But I also needed them. I couldn't do it on my own. I could not do this on my own. Because every time I tried, I failed. So jump in with both feet, man. I mean, that's the only way. For someone like me that can, that can make it, I, I fail on myself. <laughs> There's one of the quotes in my book says, we suffer in isolation and we heal in community. And that's so true. That is so true. No, that absolutely. That's a good one. Yeah. 
You'll like it. There's 368 of them. I also had a guy uh, professionally narrate it, so it's an audio tape, and a lot of my buddies have it and listen to it while they're driving. And um, it's cool. It has three chapters. The first chapter is uh, getting here, and then the second chapter is staying here, and the third chapter is higher power. And if you're in recovery or if you're an active addict who doesn't know anything about recovery, you will identify with this book. And I can't wait for you to get your copy <laughs> because I enjoy sending them out, man. I, I, I like, I love it. No, it sounds like you're doing good things. Yeah. I'm the same way. I love to give back, you know, keeps us sober. It really does. All right. So we're um, pretty close to wrapping it up. Did you have anything else you want to add? Um, no, I appreciate you. You giving me this opportunity though, because whenever I talk about what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like now, whenever I tell my story, it helps me, man. Like it, it gives me gratitude, you know, like I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch TV with my wife. I'm going to eat because there's food in my fridge and stuff like that, that I got to remember at one point, I didn't have any of that, you know, like I'm going to wake up and go to a job and I'm not going to wake up guilty. You know, imagine that <laughs> I don't have that, that, that feeling of oh shit how am I gonna fix this I haven't had that in a while man and I don't miss that you know all these fires I started how am I gonna put them out oh shit I did this oh I lied to that person oh I blew the money out I should have spent it on this instead of that and all that stuff is gone and and remembering it by talking about it and going to meetings and hearing others talk about it is so beneficial to me so thank you for letting me share here thanks for letting me share no i appreciate that i really do this is good things you're doing here man i like your podcast thanks man appreciate it I, that's all i hope to do is that people hear the stories i hope it well one thing is i hope it helps the pe person telling the story and i hope it helps the people listening to the story you know that's, sure. the, whole, that's the whole goal we identify with each other we're a lot alike yep exactly so yeah, let's wrap it up here. That was a great interview. I really appreciate you coming on. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Tumblr. You can also check out our website, www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll uh, find plenty of resources as well as uh, some free literature. So I hope you enjoy today and until next time. Thank you.